Welcome to Roar with Sparks. How loud is your roar? I am your host, Kristen Sparks. I am the CEO and founder of Roar Inc. Voices Our Power, communications and connections company. I am a corporate and personal growth facilitator. I am an infinite possibilities and certified success principles trainer, currently working on my master certification for the success principles and my BVC coaching certification. I am a facilitator, author, speaker, and thought leader. I am a cancer, broken heart, body, and soul thriver. 2022 is a power year and all about living our best life. I may live with chronic pain, but I find joy in every day in the act of getting up and having a new day filled with infinite options, opportunities, and possibilities of success. Roar with Sparks, How Loud Is Your Roar is all about you. Come join the conversation as we gather weekly to share wisdom, insight, and value, learning from and giving to each other and our special guests, sending our vibration higher and charging each other up all while having fun. Can't wait to see you here. How loud is your roar? Well, hello again for another lovely Tuesday. I am Kristen Sparks and I am Roar with Sparks. How loud is your roar? And I am honored to have Trisha Bailey, PhD, joining me today. She is the avant-garde, is that how you say that? Avant-garde entrepreneur. However you get it out is good. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You know, sometimes that really is how words are. She calls herself a serial entrepreneur and traveler, and I am so curious to know all about what that means. And I know y'all are going to love this episode. So Trisha, please, thank you so much for being here and take it away from here. Tell us all about yourself. (laughs) Well, first of all, Kristen, thank you so much for having me on your show. I love it. I love listening to it. I love your laugh. I love how you just so you, you light people up and your, your smile, they say, you know, talk about it lighting up the room. And even though people can't see you, your smile and your essence really comes through my headphones or my car radio. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. You that, wow. I'm so humbled by that. What an amazing gift. Thank you. Well, it's really good to have you here and I'm in awe. (laughs) I am truly in awe of you and everything that you're doing, your programs, your mission, please, anything to do with elevating people through whatever means your, your program is education, advocacy, and connection. And I am all about connection. We are missing that in this world, that connection to each other, no matter what our thought processes are, what our decisions are in life, what we've decided we agree with, don't agree with connecting with another human being is so important. And we have had to really pivot the way we connect. And I'm not sure that this pandemic has been good for that or really, really bad. It just kind of depends on where you're coming from and how you have, well, in some respects, taken this as a gift or not. Yeah. I think from my perspective and for the people I work with, I don't want to say the pandemic was a gift because there are so many other consequences, but as far as connecting, I think it's really enhanced connectivity globally for the people that I 
really like to hang out with because used to the only time that you met people were just like in the States when we go to a conference. So you meet people at a conference, but you don't really connect otherwise. Well, now that we have video and it's just so common to let's just hop on a Zoom, let's just hop on a Google Meet, it's gotten so much easier. And for example, this morning, I had a call with someone at seven in Malaysia. I had a video call. I had a call with a social entrepreneur and he's a Dutch guy that lives in Indonesia at nine. Then I had a couple face-to-faces and now I'm here with you. And my day would have been completely different pre-March 2020. I think that it's in, especially in a lot of the people that I work with that are living with and serving people in disadvantaged communities, technology has just opened the doors for them in so many ways because for so long they were kind of isolated to their village. And now that it's just common to hop on a video call, it doesn't matter if your sound breaks up. It doesn't matter if you're frozen, your face is frozen or if you're talking for 15 minutes and no one can hear you, it's just like, oh, that's no big deal. (laughs) Oh, the power went out. The Wi-Fi went out. I'll get back on. One of the interviews I did was with Douglas Smith, and he is from Uganda. He's the first Ugandan to manufacture soccer balls in Uganda. And they use recycled plastics and banana fibers to make the balls that are more durable for Um, They can stand up on like the clay and the silt. Like most kids in Africa, do, they don't get to play on a real pitch. They just play in the dirt or whatever. So these balls are actually durable enough to hold up for that. Well, my point in me telling you this story, even though I love talking about Douglas, is that we did his record, we did his interview from a hospital room. His girlfriend was, had to be admitted to the hospital. So we did the whole interview with video and everything from his phone in the hospital. (laughs) I mean, you wouldn't just ever think of doing that a few years ago. So I think from my little world, my little perspective, the connectivity has drastically improved since COVID happened. Yeah, I would have to say in a lot of respects for me, that has been the case. It's opened the world up. Back in the late 90s, I worked in what was called at the time distance education, and that's what this is. And we dreamed of a day that we had this technology available to us. Back then, it was distance was you got a video or you got a a VCR tape. (laughs) Yes, what's that? I know, right? I remember having these wonderful conversations with people from all over the world that worked in distance education, bringing them together. And they had to come into a conference in Southeast Florida and just literally sitting down, brainstorming. I don't know why we didn't come up with Zoom at the time. Because we so did, just didn't name it this, but going through, wow, if we could do this and we had the ability to do that. And I had this wonderful friend who was a shark expert and worked for the University of Miami and did all of these programs for kids during the summer and taught them all about sharks. And we thought we were videotaping him so that we could take that to South Dakota kids and they could learn about sharks. You know, where now I could take my phone and do this and they could do it live. (laughs) I mean, this has been such a great technological evolution of 
monstrous proportions. And I am so sorry that there are people out there that have lost people that they loved and that they've had to go through a completely different experience with this. My heart goes out to them. And then on the other side, there's people who are going through some major mental health issues because of being kept in their homes and not having the connectivity, not having the technological know-how or ability, or even some of them because they don't have the money and the resources to be able to have a laptop or, you know, a camera or, you know, for me, all kinds of podcast equipment, and I'm sure you the same. They just don't have that availability of funds. And so their experience is a completely different thing. But there's also this gift that we've been given and push forward in technology that has been amazing. It's been amazing to watch. I have a mastermind group that I put together that's international and we meet once a month. And who would have thought? that I would be meeting people in Italy and Uganda and, and wherever on monthly basis, weekly basis, daily, what that's, it is. And traveling, traveling now is open sort of, um, <laughs> but we've been able to travel in our own homes. How exciting is that? Yeah. It's, I know I've attended a couple of conferences that I wouldn't have attended them necessarily in there, you know, are different places around the world. But for example, with the Hopin platform, to be able to have, they have this great platform. It's like Zoom on steroids. I think Zoom has come out with something like that now too, but it emulates a large conference setting. So they have breakout rooms, they have a networking time, and they do a lot more usually wherever the, the country that was supposed to host it. They do a lot more with video so that you get to see the place they do like virtual tours. So even though you're not on a tour bus, <laughs> you're, you're kind of, you get to see the city and or see the areas around. And Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I think I've been to one that was on that platform and it is a robust platform. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Actually, I'll have to check that out again. Yeah. And you know, there are so many things now that are free. So for example, LinkedIn, you can do that for free. And they have like a video feature on there where you can just click a button and do a video call. And most people, this has been going on for quite a while. Farmers may not have water, but they have Wi-Fi. And I've seen this even as early as 2011, going to different countries. I think I was in Rwanda and maybe Burkina Faso in that time frame, And it's like, well, we have serious irrigation and water issues, but every farmer has a phone. And they have Wi-Fi. You don't even have to have a, like a super smartphone. Most of them have some sort of camera feature on it. And things like talking about phones like mobile money, there have been so many evolutions in fintech because of the pandemic where people are able to access learning. They're able to access healthcare. Quite a few of the social, not quite a few, but some of the social enterprises I work with have affordable healthcare programs that give people access to medical care and pharmaceuticals that they wouldn't get otherwise. And it's all because they can pay with their phone. So they have apps on their phone. They can, they don't even have to have a card. They can just show a, a thing on their phone when they get to the hospital or get to the pharmacy. 
lots with education. So there are just a lot of tools now that are free and accessible for people that never were otherwise. And I think some of that's just economies of scale. It's becoming normalized. So it's kind of the expectation. I would not say I've ever been a super high tech person, but you know, I don't necessarily keep up with all, I wouldn't call myself the early adopter of everything, but I've really enjoyed seeing how technology has evolved and how many tools out there that are free. Most, a lot of them will have like a paid option, but so much that is opening to the world that you can access for free that anyone can access. And it's really nice to see that. It is. It is. I mean, that was not something when I was going through my career time that we would offer. You didn't want to offer anything free. There was Everything was a charge. Everything was paid for. And that is something that has really come about in the last few years, where if you want to, it's try before you buy. Even with buying a car, you could take it home for three days. That was prior to the pandemic. I don't know if they're still doing that now, but you could take it home for three days and decide whether or not you wanted to keep it. How awesome was that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Used to be, if you didn't yeah. buy this car right now, after one test drive around the block, you were, you were out. <laughs> you missed you know? it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> oh, goodness. Things have so, so changed. I remember as a kid thinking, I will be the best mom because I will always understand my children. I will always understand their likes because I'm cool, right? My parents aren't cool, <laughs> yes. so they could never understand any of that. I don't understand any of it. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I kind of want to ask my kids because I know they know, but then on the other hand, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or even my grandkids. Goodness, they know more than I do on most things. I can still build a computer. Things have changed a little bit, but not a, so much that I can't do that. But software capabilities, things that you could put together to be able to do different stuff, that I'm not so hot on. But yeah, I mean, our world is an amazing place to live in right now. It really is. So you mentioned something. I've seen this a couple of times. What is a social entrepreneur? Well, so a social entrepreneur, the term has definitely gotten more broad in the past one to two years. But the concept of social entrepreneurship really started in the uh, late 1800s, I think in the UK, or was the first place that they were really identified. And the idea of social entrepreneur businesses or organizations are really to step in and fill the institutional voids that governments leave behind. So whether there's a government either either can't or won't provide a service, that's where social entrepreneurship kind of got started. So it wasn't like the welfare that the government provided because they didn't provide welfare. This was about providing services and kind of giving people tools to help themselves. And then social entrepreneurship kicked off more back, I think, in the 60s and 70s. And one of the first examples that kind of became more, I won't say popular, but more well-known, it took place, I think it was in India. And what they did was they... Um, Around the world in developing countries, and I say developing, you can kind of think about the countries around the equator. So Asia, including India, Southeast Asia, Northern Africa, 
actually most of Africa now, and then the Middle East, all these kind of countries where things were still developing. The yogurt, like what we talk about, the yogurt, the food that you buy, has been very popular because it's a way to provide nourishment and vitamins and dairy, and there are often cows available. So dairy is something, it's not as much in like China, but definitely in other places, dairy is available. So what this company did was they started making fortified yogurt. So it was yogurt that children would like, and they put extra vitamins and minerals in it. And then what they did was they had women, kind of like the concept of Avon ladies. Remember Avon? Mary Kay ladies? Uh, But back in the days of Avon, when they would literally go door to door, these women would get the yogurt and literally go door to door and sell the yogurt. Not only did it increase, it helped the dairy farmers because they were selling more milk. It helped the workers because they were manufacturing more yogurt. It helped the children because they were getting nutrition. And it helped the moms because not only were their children getting nutrition, but they were getting more money and able to pay for their children's school fees. School is not free in most places in the world. In most countries, parents have to pay for their children's school fees. Not at all like it is here in the U.S. So that was kind of the first big story of social entrepreneurship. And since then, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it's really evolved. I would say the common theme is helping disadvantaged people groups. So people who are considered to be vulnerable. This can be children women, a lot of refugees, whether they're political refugees or refugees for any reason, women who have been trafficked and are able to get out or who are saved from that. And it can also be even men who haven't had the opportunity for education. But a lot of times it's the social entrepreneurship is targeted at women and children and giving them opportunities to make a better life for themselves. So while there is absolutely positively a place for full-on charity where you are giving a bag of rice or you are giving fruits and vegetables or you are giving water, I think I can say 99.999% of the time globally, especially women, would much rather have you give them a skill so that they can buy their own bag of rice. They can buy their own water. They can buy their own stuff. They really want to have skills. Yeah, we don't want to be vulnerable. I think there might be a more formal name for it, but I call it the bag lady syndrome because I also work with other women in my other business. And I see it where women get to a point where they feel so vulnerable and they have this innate fear of being a bag lady, of being homeless or being poor and not being able to take care of themselves. And I think that that's universal, but I think it's magnified. It shows up in different ways. In developed countries, it shows up in, they have women who are feeling that vulnerability. They might have different patterns than a woman who is a subsistence farmer, where she's literally taking care of the basic needs for her family to survive. And She doesn't know if when she pulls up a sweet potato, if it's going to be rotted or not. And that's the only way she has to feed her family. So 
it shows up in different ways, the fear of being vulnerable and being alone and not being able to take, I wouldn't say alone, but the fear of not being able to take care of oneself and one's family. But the issue is still there. And so social entrepreneurship really comes in as a tool to help people help themselves. And it's giving them skills and training and opportunity that they just don't have otherwise. It's, I guess you could say it's a hand up versus a hand out kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is the whole basis of, of Christianity. Don't give a man a fish, give, teach him how to fish. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right that it's scary as a woman whether you're going through a divorce or you are at the poverty level or don't feel that you have the skills to provide for your family. I've been there. I've been where you're counting your pennies at the grocery store and they're looking at you like, what the heck is wrong with you? And that wasn't the actual word they used, but (laughs) yeah. Why are you in line with pennies? You know, like, well, you know, this is what I got. Yeah, I've been there where I felt like I absolutely had no choices. I had no skills and there wasn't any way that I was going to be able to feed myself or my family. And that vulnerability, that utter helplessness is debilitating. So this is an amazing program. How are you involved in that? Do you help them set this up? Do you support them after? How are you involved in this? I would say I work with the leaders. The leaders have social capital. So a lot of times the leaders are people who are, let's say they are maybe from Liberia. I have one friend who is, he's from Liberia. He's in his early 20s and he has decided that he wants to step up and help his family and help his community. And so he's got a couple different programs. One of them is informal education for children. This wasn't how it started. He started with job, like trying to connect people. So for example, if someone is a carpenter and they have a little extra time and they would be willing to volunteer to teach someone carpentry or welding or, you know, really important skills. So he has that aspect, but then he also has the school children that they can't afford school fees but they come and he's basically started a classroom and he teaches the kids come there and he is kind of their stability. And he's the one that shows up every day and the kids can, even in the rainy season, he's there. Rains come down, he's there. Maybe less kids are there, but the kids that do show up know that they can depend on him. So he's doing all this stuff by himself or with with a small team of people, but he has all the pressure of leading an organization, trying to find people never enough resources. And so while I can't really, if I was in Liberia, I might be able to look at the kids and smile and give them a pencil, but I can't affect any change. I can't teach them. I can be a good global citizen, but I don't have the social capital that he does. His name is Stephen. I like to be there to kind of be Stephen's cheerleader and support. If he has questions, he emails me. And we go back and forth. And sometimes I am not able to answer, you know, he might have an acute question. For example, weight payment systems are a huge challenge in Africa. Some are really evolved and some are not. So for example, 
I could send him a couple ideas to think about as far as payment systems go, but because I'm not there and I'm not familiar with the legal system and the banking system, I can't give him specific advice, but I can give him options and show him what other people are doing and show him other options that I find. And I can also kind of help him think about his challenges in a different way and see them from a different perspective. That's really what I like to do. And I think what my gifting is, is to be able to hear them, listen. I pray pretty much before I write any email or any message so that I can be clear in my spirit about what I'm hearing so that I'm not just talking, especially if I've been in analytical digital mode in my other business, that's not the time for me to hear my spirit because I'm in analytical digital mode. I need to be able to get quiet and really be able to hear my spirit and hear a word for them and then to share that and then be there when things don't go so great and cheer them on when things do go great. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) That is really awesome. Do you only work in the, the African area or are you in other areas? Africa and Asia. Those are the main areas. And in Asia, I would say probably Southeast Asia and East Asia are the main places. So Thailand, Myanmar, um, my research that I did, my doctoral research was on a social enterprise that works on the Thai-Myanmar border. They're also in Vietnam. There are quite a few social enterprises. I don't work with as many in Cambodia and Laos, but definitely Nepal and India. I do work with some that are Westerners who that's kind of their mission is to help people and they use business as a way to do that. And their challenges tend to be similar. It's a lot of business and leadership stuff, cross-cultural communication. How do I talk to my team? Especially when I'm a young female and I have older men working here and I'm in a patriarchal society, collective culture where women aren't really respected. You know, and it's all about the whole group. It's not about one person. So a lot of those, those kind of challenges. But for sure, the common denominator, I would say, is the drain that can come from being just surrounded by so much need and this never enough. So, you know, there's a poverty spirit. And I think you and I both can recognize there are some people that are wealthy in money and broken spirit. So we have this poverty spirit and we have people who, especially in Asia and Africa, they're more collective cultures. So it's not about like it is in the States where one person can excel or one person can do something. There's a lot of pressure for everyone to be able to move together. And so if one person stands out, that is not good. A lot of the challenge is, okay, how do we get everybody moving forward and not leave anyone behind? And there's just so much need. And when social entrepreneurs, they very much care about if it wasn't for their beneficiaries or their people that they're providing training and job opportunities for, they wouldn't have a social enterprise. So we all know that providing job and training is one thing, but 90% of it is what's happening up here in your head. If someone has been told that they're a piece of crap and they're not good enough for all their life, well, they're not going to believe that they can learn anything. So much of what social entrepreneurs do is the spiritual and emotional health and helping them get through and get past stuff. But then you also have to run a business. Yes, so-and-so can have a complete meltdown and you understand why she's having a meltdown. 
it's because of a lot of really bad things that happened to her. And a lot of people told her she was worthless, but yet you still have to keep your bakery or your coffee shop running in spite of her meltdown. But it's not like she's working at Starbucks in the States where you can just, okay, three strikes, you're out. She may have five or six meltdowns because she's going through some major inner healing. So I think pretty much every social entrepreneur deals with that in some way. If they're working with a human, they're dealing with brokenness. And it's not subvert like it is in regular business environments where you may have your issues, but that's kind of between you and your counselor. With social entrepreneurship, there are very, just kind of the nature of it. They are marginalized people that they're serving that have been hurt a lot in many cases. That's a huge drain if someone doesn't know how to, even if they do know how to deal with it, it's still a drain. Absolutely. That's a full-time job in and of itself, let alone trying to do all the other things they're doing. That's amazing. Wow. Kudos to you. Well, it's not me, it's them doing it. I just get to listen and give them, say, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> you're <laughs> <Right>? not alone. <laughs> They're the ones doing the hard work. I'm just a cheerleader on the sidelines. <laughs> well, you know what? It takes the coach to make the team. So as I've never been a real big sports kind of person. And when coaching first became a thing, I'm like, I'm not a coach. You know, who the heck am I going to coach? And besides, that's kind of a sports thing. It's actually really amazing. If you look at the dynamics of a football team or a soccer team or a baseball team, and without the coach, they would just be people running around on the field with a ball. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so true. Yeah. We just be kids on a playground. And with the coach, we bring them together. We give them a reason to want to be the quarterback or the halfback or whatever, the guard. I don't know. I want to probably say like the, you know, midfield. And I think that's not football. That's the other football. So I'm really not a sport. My audience resonates with the other footballs. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So they're going to understand that, but not the other part of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But the coach really does provide that backbone for the team, the direction and how the team is going to go. Are we going to come out spitfire and everybody else is to blame for what we're doing? Or are we going to come out taking 100% responsibility for our part in this, whatever part that might be that we're playing? We are the backbone. We're the ones that lift them up and carry them sometimes. And it's a hugely important piece to what is happening. And the field, the program that you're playing in is amazing. And kudos to you for doing that, because not everybody can jump in there and go, yeah, I think I'm going to go work in some very poor sections of the world and provide to them a service that not many people will provide. And I'm going to do it as a blonde woman. And that's not, yeah, in that area, some of those areas that you're in, that's not the norm. So you're an inspiration to me. Absolutely. When you first decided to go to school, what made you decide to go this direction in your PhD? Well, I started my PhD kind of the same back in the late 90s, I think. 
the same semester I was finishing my MBA, I started my PhD. And then I realized, you know what? I need to make sure I can hack it in this world before I graduate with a whole bunch of letters behind my name and can't make any money. (laughs) So, and kind of funny, I was supposed to get engaged and I bought a plane ticket and moved to Costa Rica for a little while and went to surf school and not surf school, but I went to surf and I went to Spanish language school. And I'd had quite a few rather traumatic things happen when I was in college. I was coming off of some heavy antidepressants. I probably took my, I think I took myself off of them. Probably was not the best thing to do, but I did. And when I I realized when I was in Costa Rica that you don't make life-altering decisions when you're on mind-altering drugs. (laughs) So I realized, wow, I like this guy a lot. And I really want this to work, but I don't love this guy. So when I got back home, we broke up and I lived with my Nana. God bless her. She is like the halfway house for our family. I lived with my Nana for a year and went back to bartending because that's what I did all through college. And then moved to the town that I live in now. And I thought that I I was planning on getting a job in international trade because that's what my MBA was in. Well, even though this is a port city where I live, I could still make more money bartending than I could with an MBA at the time. So back to the bar it was, and I got a job at a restaurant that is a really popular chain now, but at the time it, it was kind of new, and it was the high, the highest. I was on the opening bar team, bartending team, and we had the highest grossing sales of any of the others in the chain. It was a really popular place in my town. So I got to meet a lot of people, and bartending really set the trajectory for my life now. And I eventually got out of it. And I got to a point where I had done some other things and I had the business that I have now. And I intentionally set it up because I wanted to be able to travel again because I traveled so much in my 20s. I was paying for my own school, my own university. So I would take three months off in between degrees and go travel somewhere. And that was, I lived like a miser when I was in school, like a hermit. All I did was study and work, saved up my money, scrolled it away. And then I would go overseas and just go wild. <laughs> because no one was going to see what I'm doing over here. Right. Y'all, y'all just look the other way. Yeah. That was back before the smartphone and we could get away with that kind of thing, right? Yes. God bless my parents because right. I would go for weeks without calling because you had to stand. But mom, the line, the payphone was so long and you never knew if the payphone was actually going to work or if the card you got was going to work. Oh my gosh. Anyway, I traveled so much and loved it. I knew that as an adult, I wasn't going to do all that kind of crazy stuff, but I wanted to still be able to have different experiences than I would at home. And so as I started traveling more and more, I started seeing these people who, it was amazing. They loved people. A lot of them were Christians or loved the Lord but they use business to help people. So instead of giving them fish, they taught them how to fish, exactly what you said. And I just thought it was fascinating because I worked with a lot of business owners in my other company and I also owned a business. So I understood the challenges of being a business owner, but here they were doing this in these very difficult circumstances. So I had been looking for a PhD program for a while, but it wasn't easy to find one that did had anything international that you could do while you were still working because I couldn't just take a month or 
not couldn't, I wasn't going to take a month or three months off and go to London or something like that. Then it was one day I just got this random email about a scholarship opportunity for a university. And I said, well, maybe this is my sign. I'll apply for the scholarship. And if I get a full ride, then this will be my sign that I'm supposed to pursue my PhD. Now, before it was going to be an econometrics, so very statistically oriented. It was things that you could use to create trade indices and all that kind of stuff of whether you would or wouldn't trade with this country or that country because of all these factors. But when I went back, I wanted to do international trade and I wanted to specifically study these businesses. And I didn't even know what they were called at the time. It took me over a year into my research to figure out what these types of businesses were called because it was still so new as far as as a concept, especially being studied. And one of the things that's interesting about a PhD program is that I hear people say, oh, I'm going to get my PhD in this and study this. And they kind of have the name of their dissertation. It doesn't work like that. You can't do a dissertation unless there is a scholarly foundation for it. There already has to be a foundation in the academic literature for it. And that's part of what a dissertation is. All leading up to your study, it has to be grounded in the works of others. And that's why academic and the the sciences, they literally, you build on the shoulders of other scholars. So Thomas Edison had the ability to just go out and make something. But most scientists these days, especially at the PhD level, if you're going to study it for a dissertation, it has to be grounded in the existing literature. That's why it was so important for me to even, I knew that I wanted to study these, but I didn't even know what they were called. That was a big deal for me. I still remember the day I was sitting at Starbucks and I saw this article and there was a guy named Michael or something in the article. And I saw this word, social enterprise. And I said, oh my gosh, is that it? So I started doing more research and that's what a dissertation is. It's basically breadcrumbs that you just, just follow. And yeah, I started learning more about social enterprise from the socialist perspective. So there's the kind of the perspective of wealth redistribution, but then there's more the U.S. perspective of wealth creation. So a lot of like the European countries and even any country that was colonized by a European country, typically it's more about from a socialist foundation where this is about not necessarily about making money, but it's about redistributing the money and the resources that are already there. Whereas the US, it's all about, let's make more money for everybody, or let's make more money. And so I found that now social entrepreneurship, they used to be more of like the socialist model and the capitalist model. And now there seems to be more of kind of a blending. And I don't want to say into one, because there is this enormous spectrum of profit to nonprofit with social enterprise. But there is certainly more of an emphasis on being profitable for long-term viability. So it's not about a board or about a C-suite getting rich. It's about we need to make money because we want to be viable long-term and we want this business to last beyond us. We want these services and this opportunity to last beyond us. Right. So it becomes a legacy. Yeah. Yes, I think it's been a nice mix. I know that there are sometimes people are like, oh, the socialists or oh, the capitalists and and social entrepreneurship. There might be a tad of a divide, but there is much more of a coming together. And it just kind of seems to be an organic blending that's happening. 
we still have this tremendous spectrum of profit to nonprofit in social enterprise. But pretty much all of it is about if we are making money, this is we're making money for a long term so we can support more people. That's why we're making money. That's really amazing to be able to bring together kind of a culmination of, of the capitalist and the socialist versus having such a separation. We tend to be afraid of that word socialist here, especially in the older generation. I think the younger generation has less of an idea of what we saw as socialist, and we are afraid of the word because it means that they're going to take away something in order to get what they want. And what I'm hearing you say is really, when it comes down to it, it's a matter of sharing the resource. Yeah, it's giving the ability for all of us to have the ability to provide for ourselves and our families. Having lived in a very capitalist country, I've never lived anywhere but the United States. I've lived in a lot of different states, but they're all basically under the same foundation. And yet, when I was at my lowest point, financially and spiritually, I didn't know where to go for resources. I had no idea. And this type of enterprise puts a different spin on it. Because for me, it was like, okay, I could go find a church. Well, I don't want to because that's where I'm separated at right now. I don't want to go apply for food stamps because the line is too long. You know, (laughs) I'll never get there. I wanted to be able to provide by standing on my own two feet but I don't know how to do that. These types of enterprises would be kind of the next step. They would be where I could go to find the resources to stand on my own two feet, not to ask for the bag of rice, but to find out how I could buy that bag of rice. Exactly. Can I hire you? You say it a lot more simply than I do. (laughs) Can you be my PR person? (laughs) Yeah, no problem at all. (laughs) I'll pay you a very high salary of a lot of love. (laughs) (laughs) Just send me the application. I'll fill it out tomorrow. No, but really it would, you know, because for my circumstance, it was, I wanted to stand on my own two feet and I wanted to be able to find that piece that was missing. And it really sounds like that's what this is. And while you are working in what you might call a third world country setting right now, I think this model could truly be used anywhere in any neighborhood that has felt marginalized, that has felt kept down, because personally believe that a lot of these programs that we have in the United States, social welfare, don't provide people the ability to stand on their own two feet. It really does say, if you stay here, we'll give you this. If you go here, we're not. And that doesn't seem like the way to be able to really raise people up. I agree with you. And there are a few social enterprises that I know of here in the States. One is DC Kitchen. So it's up in the Washington, DC area. And it's amazing because it's not just a kitchen or a food bank, but they also grow. So they teach urban agriculture. So they teach people how to grow the food. They deal with the distribution, the preparation, the serving. And there's one actually here in my town called Rethreaded. And they help women. So they make jewelry, 
they do sewing. So if a woman has a natural talent for something, they use her talent or they give her skills. But what these organizations do is they provide structure and accountability. So for example, in the situation that that you were in, which a lot of women find themselves in, if you can have some structure provides it's not a safety net, but it's almost like the difference between driving down a mountain road and having guardrails versus not. Structure provides a little bit of safety and it's like a hug that's not confining, but then also accountability to get well because it is not easy to do the emotional, mental, and spiritual work to get healed from sometimes women find themselves in this situation for a lot of different reasons. But a lot of times I know from my experience, I was attracting these negative people into my life with these negative habits. And I realized, okay, what's the common denominator? Oh, that would be me. (laughs) I might not be, I might not have this particular issue, but I keep attracting people, especially men into my life with this. And so Obviously, the common denominator is me. I've recognized that a couple of times in my life. Well, I recognize it a lot now. Like, oh yeah, I'm the common denominator. But it's important for people to, when it comes to spiritual healing, to do that work. And it is not easy. But if you have someone who is holding you accountable, who's kind of guiding you, holding your hands, and if you're an independent person, just holding you accountable and being there to kind of Knowing somebody's going to be there to pick you up when you have a, a major breakthrough, which can be a breakdown first before right. the breakthrough. <laughs> exactly. When, anytime you're going through that growth, it's like peeling an onion. You get one layer off and then there's a whole nother layer that you have to get through. It stings and it's stinky. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it does. It makes you cry. We are so afraid of our emotions in this world that just that can be enough to send you in a spiral. But I know for me, it was like you peel one thing off and you think, oh, good, I've made it. And then, oh, I'm right back in it again. And I have to do it again. And it's having those support systems and that guardrail there. So you, you're you not going to go spin out. But I don't know where I heard this, but at some point in my growth, that fear of spin out was so strong. I just thought that if I cried, I would never stop again. I couldn't turn the faucet off. I would not be able to turn the anger off. I would not be able to come back and be a whole person again. That was not the case. I'm still here. So I didn't disappear. I didn't blow up. I got through it. Was it easy? No. But it was the greatest thing that I ever did because it gave me back the responsibility of my life. And in learning to truly, truly take that responsibility for my life, all of it, the dirty, the gross and disgusting, the absolute amazing, glorious things gave me such joy. It really did. It gave me such joy and such strength and courage to do it again. I don't want to do it again. I don't want to have to go through the whole thing again, but I have the courage to do it if if something else comes up. You just, you go, okay, 
We're at it again. <laughs> what adventure am I going on now? <laughs> Here's another trip around the mountain. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And they can be so exciting. And now yeah. it's like I literally just say, okay, it's a magic carpet ride. <laughs> we don't know where we're landing. <laughs> when you talk about not wanting to do it and we talk about it being painful, it seems like for me, I got to this point where. Once I let one thing go, I was like, why did I hang on to that for so long? And I got confidence that, okay, I'm going to go through this ick and I'm going to get past it and I'm going to settle at a different level of where I am now. It doesn't mean I'm higher or lower. I'm just at a different length. And I realized that once I just backed off a little bit, it was like my spirit would come in and just refresh me in the area that I was ready. It might not have been healing this one wound, but it was healing something else. And it was like, once I let go of trying to dictate the order in which my healing, like the stuff I removed, it was like, once I was vulnerable enough to let my spirit heal, sometimes things would come up. I'm a huge advocate of writing uh, meditation, writing prayer things would come up. And then I got to the point where I'm like, okay, what else is there? Let's get rid of that too. Let's get rid of that too. Let's get rid of that too. Because I'm like, let's just get all this crap out right now. <laughs> and it didn't happen right away. Right. It doesn't. It's a process. Yeah. And then you're just like, okay, let's just see what else is in here. Let's get this crap out and move on. <laughs> and I'm like you, I wouldn't trade it. Oh my gosh. It was terrible. As far as I remember walking out and I would feel wrecked for not, not a, well, sometimes a week, depending on what it was, but definitely for a few days as your your spirit and your soul, ha your soul has to come back into alignment with your spirit. It's like it's a, your spirit is kind of your gyroscope. It's like the thing in the front of the boat that keeps you level and your soul doesn't like it when your spirit is going in a different direction and it has to come into alignment. And that's, that causes a lot of fatigue. It does. A friend of mine was telling me today that she has this vision of her getting on an airplane and flying off to some grand destination somewhere, but she has the vision of going through the turnstile and she can't get through and she keeps butting against the turnstile and she can't figure out why she can't get through. And she realizes it's these great big suitcases that she's trying to get through with her. And she has to literally let go of all of that crap that she's carrying in order to get through the turnstile. Great visual, isn't it? Yeah, we it's so, so true. We have to release stuff and let go of things before new stuff can come in because there's just not enough room. You have to let go of it. And, and it's a huge risk to let go of stuff. It's a huge risk to throw things away. It's a huge risk to give things away, let alone our stuff that we've been carrying around for so long and we're comfortable with. <laughs> Right? Oh, I really yes. like this sweater. <laughs> I don't really like this sweater, but I'm really comfortable in this sweater. So, yeah, I don't look good in this sweater, but yeah, I know. Have you ever done Marcy Shimoff's 27 in nine days? It's a cleansing, and you take nine days for every nine days, you have to throw away 27 things. You can throw it away, give it away, whatever. It can be literally 27 post-it notes because I have post-it notes everywhere and I don't even know what my post-it notes say because they're stacked on top of each other. <laughs> also, 
whatever that thought was at the time I did the post-it note meant something. And when once I write it down, it's up here. It's when I don't write it down, I tend to forget it. So the, there really is no reason to have all the post-it notes, but I keep these post-it notes. So anyway, back to the 27. It could literally be 27 post-it notes, but it has to be 27 things every day for nine days. And if you miss one day, you have to start all over again. You can go through your kitchen cabinet, you could go through your closet, and you don't have to do just one room on a day. You could do 27 things from the whole house. At the end of it, I don't know, it's like the light comes on and you go, oh, wow, do I feel lighter and brighter? And it's just this complete cleanse and I, I need to do it again. I did it six months ago. I need to do it again. It's time to do it again. Because it is, <laughs> it, I think it's becoming addictive. <laughs> I kind of like that feeling. You know, I kind of like being clear of some of the stuff that I really don't need that I've been carrying around. I did it when we decided to move into an RV and we went from 3,000 square feet into 300 square feet. Oh my. Wow. I also had three storage units. So don't let me, you know, make you think that I just went to 300 square feet and got rid of everything. I didn't. I had three storage units that I left and 10 by 10, we'll say, because that was basically the size. Then I stuffed my RV full of stuff that I, I got out once and went, why am I carrying this all across the country? Because I've, I will never use it. Got rid of a lot of stuff. I mean, I, there were goodwills across this country that have my stuff now. <laughs> but you go through these cleansings over and over again. You move, you start cleansing. I don't understand these people. Well, I'll, I'll do it when I unpack. I am not putting that into a suitcase. I am not putting that into a box unless it's something I need or think I need right now. Otherwise, it's going somewhere else. But it is. It's such a great thing to do, whether it is physical or whether it is spiritual. You know, to sit back and do some cleansings to get rid of and let go of things. You know, it can be even monetary. Sometimes you need to clean that out to let the good and the new come in. But I like your gyroscope. I love that. And the soul and the spirit are not yeah. together. Yeah. My friend Rose Boone taught me that she does theophastic healing. So it's a real deep healing from trauma stuff. And she's the one that told me about that. And that really helped me a lot because I couldn't understand why I was so worn out. And that illustration really helped me a lot. Of, okay, okay, so we are going in a new direction and my soul is going to come into alignment with it. It's not going to like it, but it's going to do it. And that was, you know, it's so funny, the little things like she told me the most profound stuff and has helped me so much. And the gyroscope is the thing that comes out in our chat today. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a boater, so I get it. <laughs> you know, not everybody does. Not everybody does. Yeah, that is such a good visual for me and keeping balanced because life is all about this balance. And I kind of use the metaphor of, of the floating, you know, in water. And if you are able to balance, you can go backwards and completely stay afloat. But it takes balance to do that. And sometimes that takes work to get to that. So true. Oh, this has been an absolute pleasure today. We'll say goodbye to our audience. And thank you again for joining thank us. Thank you, Kristen. 
Oh, Trish, it's been just absolutely awesome. And y'all go to trishabaileyphd.com. Check out her avant-garde entrepreneur podcast. It's amazing. She's got a great program there. Check it out. Anybody that is interested in business and social enterprise. And again, thanks so much for joining Roar with Sparks. How loud is your roar? It has been a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar with Sparks. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, rate, review, subscribe on your favorite podcast player. We can be reached at www.wrarinc.com. Thank you again, and we can't wait to see you here next week. How loud is your roar?